I would not uh, never call it that we train a lot on threshold, but but I think to train a lot of your hard sessions with control, that I think is very important. And we do that a lot. The Triathlon Show 245. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Erik Myr-Nossum, who is the head coach of the Norwegian cross-country skiing national team. In this interview, we discuss his training and coaching philosophy for cross-country skiing and generally for endurance training and how it applies to elite and to amateur endurance athletes. In the first part of the interview, we do talk a fair bit about cross-country skiing specifically. Of course, myself being from Finland, it's definitely part of my cultural heritage as well. And it was fascinating to get some insights into the training aspects of world-class skiers, but uh, also insights into things like long-term athlete development in cross-country skiing in Norway. But don't be discouraged if you could not care less about cross-country skiing, because much of the, the even the first part of the interview uh, is very relevant for all endurance athletes, no matter what your sport. But uh, if you do want to skip past the cross-country skiing culture and long-term athlete development in Norwegian skiers, then by all means do so. so. But after we cover those topics, we shift to very general endurance sports topics like periodization, interval training, performance testing, and so on. So there's a lot of gold here, no matter what your typical your personal preference in terms of endurance sports but before we get into the interview with eric big thanks to our sponsors precision hydration you can find them on precisionhydration.com and as you know by now they help you match your individual uh, sweat sodium content to electrolyte supplements that are matched for the same concentration as what you will be losing in your sweat this means that you can easily stay on top of sodium losses and replenish it adequately so that you don't suffer from unnecessary performance decrements or potentially things like cramps, especially in hotter conditions and longer races and events. So check them out and get 15% off your order of electrolytes with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, dry suits, swim skins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear. And uh, they work with world-class athletes like uh, Javier Gomez, Flora Duffy, Lucy Charles Barclay, Mario Mola, and many, many others in both long course and uh, short course triathlon, as well as in uh, countless other sports, including cycling, running, uh, volleyball, and uh, many others. So visit roca.com and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Erik Myr-Nossum. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Erik. How are you doing today? Thank you very much. I'm doing quite good. Uh, I'm staying at home with my newborn son and... Uh, the, everything is just perfect. 
Well, if uh, your newborn son wants to join us, then uh, maybe, maybe we'll get a soundbite of, of that later. <laughs> we'll see. But uh, why <laughs> yeah. don't you start by just introducing yourself to the audience? Who, who are you? Well, um, I'm uh, 35 years old. Uh, I'm uh, Now I'm a head coach for the national team uh, in cross-country skiing in Norway. Uh, for the men's i've been uh, that since 2018 uh, and the two years before that i was a assistant coach uh, i was a former cross-country skier myself but that uh, that's some years ago um uh, but i almost my entire grown-up life i've been um, a coach in cross-country skiing uh, i started off with uh, Petter Nordug, which is one of the best cross-country skiers of all times. And I was uh, a coach for him. I was a ski tester for him. So I was sort of a service guy for him for seven years uh, until I started um, uh, as a head coach or as a coach in the national team. Uh, And in between all this working with cross-country skiing, I also have a... My academic background uh, is a master's degree in exercise uh, physiology uh, from the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences. So I did my master's there in 2014. And you also have a podcast in Norwegian. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, me and my wife, we have we have the same academic background. Um, I myself has always worked with the cross-country skiers she has worked with tennis players uh, boxers and more regular people uh, that's not on the elite level and we started this podcast prestationsprat uh, together last year uh, where we discuss yeah topics regarding uh human performances uh, human performance uh, in any type of sport actually so but mostly uh, endurance related until now <laughs> yeah well uh, i mean uh, that triathlon show has a strong listenership in norway and sweden so hopefully uh, some of, some of these listeners uh, will find your podcast this way and uh, and give it a listen um, but uh, let's start with uh, the discussion for today. And the first thing I want to to ask you is that uh, as triathletes, most of the listeners are triathletes, but there are a lot of cyclists and runners and etc. But we often hear uh, in endurance sports in general that studies done in cross-country ski years are being referenced. But uh, few of us actually know how a typical cross-country skier trains. So I think that many times we, we actually lack a bit of context. Many don't even have never watched a cross-country skiing event, so they might not even know what it's about and what type of sport that is. So <laughs> can you get a bit, give a bit of an overview of that? Yeah, and, and it's such a huge question sort of to answer because there's a a lot of variety regarding training models between countries, uh, everything, but uh, due to cultural differences and traditions. Uh, so I can only try to answer this question uh, in with Norwegian eyes uh, and taking the bird's eye perspective, I would say in cross-country skiing, we have a large focus on low intensity training with a high volume uh, and sort of level one intensity training and for my team which is the national team we 90 percent 
uh, of our training is is very easy um uh, low intensity and the the, the rest the 10 percent rest is high intensity and strength and speed work uh, and and this is due to the the demand the the sport uh, has its aerobic capacity uh, all the way uh, or not all the way but uh, a lot is decided by aerobic capacity and we have a competition ranging from uh, three minutes until two hours uh, and the sprinters who are going three minutes it's that's also a aerobic capacity uh, event so uh, and yeah if i were to say there's a, a small difference between the sprinters who compete three minutes to five minutes and uh, the ones doing the the longest competitions uh, from one hour to two hours we, they train quite the same um uh, as i said in the start 90 percent is easy yeah and and i think with the sprinters as well for those listeners that uh, that are not familiar with it it's important to point out that uh you as a sprinter in cross-country skiing you do multiple heats in a single day so i think that also probably plays a part in making the the aerobic capacity so important for that event because you you, you can't get away with just doing it once you have to repeat it several times that same day and uh yeah most definitely so so it's uh, it's a great overview i mean it falls uh, nicely into sort of the polarized training model which is one of the main reasons i think that uh, that uh, endurance athletes in other sports have started to learn about cross-country skiing because many studies referenced in the polarized training literature are done in uh, in cross-country mm. skiers so i guess that you it sounds from it already that uh, that you you fully agree with with this concept and that's what you're practicing uh polarized training is sort of uh, <laughs> what i preach every day uh and polarized training yeah re- refers to the distribution of training intensities in uh, a training plan for the athlete and uh, a high percentage of the training is done in low intensity let's say around 80 like i said 90 percent and the rest of the training is focused on maybe on the high intensity training and for us a rather little of the training is at the moderate intensity training uh but this is sort of a this is something i preach a lot and we and that we have focus on but if you take a deep dive into the training i think some more than we might actually uh, say um is at this modern uh, moderate intensity intensity because when we go in a roller skiing track which is like a ski track it's up and down up and down up and down uh if you follow then the heart rate if you if you're going with a heart rate monitor a lot of that that exercise is at moderate intensity but uh, the actual uh, actual intensity in the uphills are quite high but if you compare it to heart rate i think a lot of our training might be at moderate intensity uh 
even though I preach to have polarized training. Mm. And if we talk a bit about the high intensity that you have when you do interval workouts, for example, uh, are you a fan of slightly longer intervals? So Steven Seiler, for example, has talked about the four times eight minutes and so on. Or do you include a lot of shorter intervals, something that is typically, you might call it VO2 max intervals, one, two or three minutes or, or so? What's your preference there? Or do you mix between all of those yeah I, during a, a year we mix uh, most definitely but uh, i'm more a fan of the longer intervals uh, i'm a head coach for the distance team so for us the competitions are almost every time from 30 minutes and above so for, for us intervals with a to- uh, ranging from 45 minutes to one and a half hours uh, split up into five or or seven intervals. So, uh, but uh, as we're getting closer to our um, to November and the snow is coming, we cut down the um, how how long the intervals are. So more VO2 max, as you call it. Um, but my preference is uh, more of the long uh, intervals. Mm. And coming back to one point, uh, when you mentioned uh, about the volume that you do, you uh, you like to have a high volume. How many yearly training hours is it typical to to get for for a skier, like a senior skier, not a junior coming through the ranks, but somebody who is already has matured and is ready to handle a lot of training? What would be a typical yearly tra- training hours number? I think if you if you collect training data from a lot of senior Norwegian cross country skiers, they they range up from eight hundred to thousand training hours a year, depending mostly on the um, how many competitions you do. Because in the national team, we do a lot of competitions. Uh, I think last uh, last winter was a bit strange because it was. Um, uh, interrupted by this COVID nineteen, but uh, the plan was thirty five to forty competitions from the middle of November until the end of March. So you you do one or two competitions every week, uh, um, and then you can't train that much. But uh, a senior at the at the level just outside of the national team, they might uh, train. A bit more actually because they they aren't able to compete that much so so they can train a bit more during the season and and that mm. I, I would say that might be uh one of the benefits of being just outside of the national team uh at least in the end of the season because uh, the national team always get a bit tired uh in the end of the season because you haven't been able to train that much you have been competing all the time and and then the the balloon is broken (laughs) yeah and uh for reference 800 to 1000 hours per year that translates to i think roughly 17 to 20 hours per week yeah uh, or so on average uh would you say is there a period like maybe summer uh, or autumn when you're preparing for the racing season but the snow isn't there yet when when basically when are you having your highest training volume and what would be a typical weekly volume in in that period of highest training volume 
Yeah, then I have to say uh, my opinion here is that I I don't I try not to or my athletes try not to have so um, big difference in training volume from May or from June until October in in plain volume it's almost the same every month but the um, we change the intensity which uh, and of course you have other things in the autumn which are uh, yeah the restitution isn't that good in the autumn so it's i think uh, if you look at the training volume as a result of both hours and intensity uh october september and october are the the hardest then we train mm-hmm. probably around 100 uh hours a month and the intensity is harder <laughs> the rain is uh, the weather is bad uh it's dark outside uh sometimes it's snowing sometimes it's not snowing so it's hard to uh have a variation in uh, what do you train as well uh so maybe we have some more hours in june but then it's more low intensity so um i would say the training volume is highest uh, at the end of the autumn yeah another thing that uh that i was thinking of when you mentioned that you can you can only speak about this from the norwegian perspective and uh and there are variations between different countries how things are done but uh, i mean i think that the the culture you have in norway with cross-country skiing is probably one reason for the dominance of the norwegians in in the sport but uh, but i'm curious to hear like because i'm sure you know a little bit about how the others are training as well <laughs> so so do you think there are certain things that you do differently in training or it might not even be in training but around training that you are able to share and talk about that you think might contribute to to the success that you're having yeah and to start off there is is uh it's 100 correct that cross-country skiing most certainly is one of the top sports in norway uh, we are born with the skis on our feet uh, and i've been think i've got this question a lot and asked why are norwegian that good and and what are you doing and i think to start off, I would say that if you take the 100 biggest sport talents uh, each year, um, many of these sport talents who will, would probably end up being successful in any sport they would have chosen, many of these 100 uh, talents, they choose cross-country skiing in Norway. They end up choosing cross-country skiing. In other countries, of these 100 talents, maybe none of them chooses cross-country skiing because all of them goes to football or triathlon or running and cycling. Um, You also go to that in Norway, but a lot of these 100 biggest talents end up choosing cross-country skiing because it's such an elite sport in Norway. If you are at the highest level in cross-country skiing, uh, you're a known celebrity uh, uh, in Norway. And uh, this is the culture part. And and I think regarding to the training that the, the Norwegian Ski Federation, they have sort of been in charge of the development of a system 
of like several stages uh, of development from when the kids are from five years all the way through to senior age. And all of these stages of development are not only scientifically evidence-based, but they're also widely practiced all around Norway. So every school, every club uh, sort of trains out of the same system. Uh, And it's hard for me to say that it is a system because for me that sounds a bit like old time Russia or, or something, but there's a, um, there's a system in Norway, how, how to train. And as much as these stages of development are evidence-based, uh, the take home message is, is that you have to train a lot. You have to train smart, but never, ever forget to have fun, find, find something that is fun for kids to do with skis on their feet. So they're uh, familiar with this. And I don't think it's uh, more to it than that. But it's amazing to see that I live in Oslo, the capital of Norway. And uh, I think if you, on a weekly basis, there are 10,000 kids participating in cross-country training only in Oslo. And, and they, no other country in the world has this. Yeah, yeah, that that makes total sense. And uh, but it's really interesting to hear you hear you explain it. It reminds me a little bit uh, of uh, in the book The Sports Gene by David Epstein. He uh, tackles different topics, including the Kenyan dominance in distance running and also the Jamaican dominance in in sprint running. And some of those same cultural reasons that you mentioned are seem to be very largely behind behind those other examples of of dominance I just mentioned as well. So. Uh, Definitely makes sense that, that that's the case there, mm. uh, but uh, but also the take home message. I really like that that you have to have have fun, never stop having fun. And I think even when you're an adult, a senior, that that should be should be the case. Um, and uh, then one thing that I actually heard that is that your young skiers they actually take charge of their training or they take part at least in the planning of their training from a pretty young age. So is that something that uh, you can elaborate about how that works and what is the reason for that? Yeah, that that, that is true. And and uh, for me as a as a national coach, uh, I I want my athletes to be as knowledgeable about performance and exercise as possible. Uh, they are far better experts on their own bodies than than I am. Uh, I can only speak in general. That I'm quite good at, but they are experts on themselves uh, and uh, I can only like ask questions, try to guide and challenge their, their ideas from a, maybe from a physiological perspective. And, and in my opinion, there's, there's no plan that, that fits all. Uh, I have six guys at my team and, and that's so also, yeah, the, most of their training is quite similar, but there's also some differences because if they are to peak at the highest level to to be a world champion or a, a Olympic champion, everything needs to be, be perfect. And those six individuals uh, would not be able to do that if they did everything the same. They need to be uh, focused on what... Uh, <laughs> what they need if you understand me and and um 
to be able to have these good cons- constructive discussions with the athletes at the elite level, um, I'm completely dependent on them having reached a certain level of theor- uh, theoretical and practical uh, knowledge. Um, and that school, uh, so to speak, starts very early on. And I've been a, a coach at the, at the club level as well. And there, as I as stated earlier about the stages of development, it's quite clear uh, from early on that we coaches try to uh, say to the athletes, try and figure it out this yourself. Try to have... Uh, to train hard for three days in a row. Uh, find out how your body reacts to that. Try to have no hard sessions for 10 days. See how th- this works for you. Uh, and we sort of try to, at least during the junior age, you try to use those four years as a learning time so that the, these athletes can... At when they're seniors, try to be even better at making their own plans, or at least have some some something to bring into the discussion. So, is there a specific age when this starts, or is it really like you gradually include more and more independence as athletes age, or is it that they start start when they ten or twelve or fourteen, or what's the system regarding that? Of course, there's some regulations here but and some differences but i would say when when they're from they're 12 years old and up to 20 that uh, those eight six or eight years in between there uh that it's a very important age for learning and and trying out and especially i would say the years as a junior uh that when you are from 17 to 20 in norway uh it's the most important age because then you're starting to reach a certain amount of training volume as well uh, and then you can try to or start to uh practice some other things we have uh in norway at the national level we don't train a lot of strength This is not because we don't have the faith in strength, but a lot of my guys at the team have have tried to train a lot of strength. Uh, that didn't quite work out. Uh, they have tried not to train at all. That didn't work out as well. But uh, uh, yeah, so they're, after some years, they have found out uh, sort of a way for them how how much strength training do i need in order to be the best in the world or be at the level i want to and this is what you you use this junior age for to hopefully learn uh, athletes how to learn themselves if you understand what i'm saying <laughs> definitely yeah and uh, like i like how the the sound of it how it's all basically very organic like you learn through discussing with the coach and the coach maybe giving you some different like telling you to try this or try that and and the the body will give you the answer and and you learn about how your body responds so and sounds yeah sounds really good and i i have there i always use this quote that 
me as a coach. I, um, I, as I said, I have six guys at uh, at my team. I that that makes us a team of seven with me as a coach. Of us seven, there's six of them who is really really great athletes. <laughs> uh, they're and they're far better skiers than me. So they need to be able also to learn from each other, discuss uh, with each other because I uh, they are so much better skiers than me. So it would be stupid for me to learn them how to ski a race. I can only ask them questions, as I say. I can only point out a few things. When they're going a 5K, I can only see them at one point. The, the rest five uh, 4.9 kilometers they're going with their uh, athlete friends who can use that, uh, that into the discussion of how this session was so I'm trying to yeah give them responsibility for their own training and for the uh, for the group training as well not only for themselves but for the group yeah, no, I think that's a great initiative, and I'm sure that some other sports and federations have this in place. I know that in triathlon, I think the British Triathlon Federation have have a similar uh, concept, although I'm not sure if it starts as early as as you do. But uh, but they they have something similar in place, and definitely I think that it's probably going to follow more and more in the future because I, I, it's pretty pretty difficult to get an athlete to the very highest level if they if they are completely dependent on their coach yeah you need to have a level of independence yeah so let's uh, get into some other topics some more general topics that uh, that i know actually that you covered on your podcast uh, in recent months so so with this if you just give a brief overview and take home message on on each of these then i think that's we can start with that and then maybe we decide to go deeper on on one or a couple of them but uh, but let's start with just uh, the brief overview and take home message and the first uh, topic that i want to tackle is uh, fitness testing mm. yeah uh, and as you said this is a topic we we talked a lot about uh, in our podcast this is a podcast with, in which we talk norwegian so i'm sorry to all guys speaking english but um regarding fitness testing um my opinion is that a lot of uh, people test just to test uh, they don't have a standardization model which is good enough etc etc for me the take-home message regarding testing is that if you are to test you are to test yourself and not compare yourself your test result to other athletes friends (laughs) family etc then you need to find a test which you can do again under the reasonable same conditions uh, and don't care so much if you are beaten by somebody else at that test because if you are doing better if you're improving that's the most important thing Uh, and that's why you test so you can sort of uh, find out if if the training is is uh, working or do i need to evaluate the the training i'm doing because suddenly i um, i do worse at some tests 
uh, etc and and you don't always need to do this testing in a uh, lab mm-hmm. i am quite uh, more fond of doing tests outside uh, but uh, i know there's this is a uh, we can discuss this <laughs> until tomorrow i'm pretty sh- sure of one one quick question, one quick follow up on that. When you test outside, do you just use uh, speed, uh, heart rate, or do you also uh, use some sort of lactate testing despite testing outside? Yeah, when we when we use lactate outside, it's not in a testing uh, way. It's just to sort of know that the intensity is somehow uh, correct uh, for what we are looking for uh if we are testing outside for me it's it's just uh the the time with what's important um but if you do it in a lab there's of course there's more information you can get out of it so um uh, you can look at oxygen of course lactate uh, heart rate the ventilation you can look at a lot of uh, you can get a lot of information out of it but it's very easy to drown uh, drown in this information if you don't know what you are looking at absolutely yeah you need to know know what to do with the information that you get yeah the next topic is periodization what are your thoughts on that yeah uh, for me, the the periodization and different kind of models of periodization is is in my head. Now I might uh, end up uh, uh, hurting somebody, but for me, the models and everything is somehow more an art than not. I don't I don't feel like everything is evidence based or or scientifically based enough. It's uh, for me, it's just—it's good planning of training. That's what I—I I, I put into the word periodization, uh, and you have this uh, very specific periodization models which you can look at uh, at the internet and and read about. And there's a lot of, especially in running, uh, a lot of models and strength training. Um, but for me, it's not scientifically enough uh how they are sort of uh, stands out it for me it's more art than science yeah and uh, next topic interval training yeah uh, uh and the last years if you had asked me about what what i think about intervals compared at least compared to continuous training three years ago i would say that uh, almost every time do intervals not not uh, don't do continuous training do intervals because uh it's more bang for your buck uh uh, you you can do it with a higher speed, higher watt, etc. Uh, than you can do with continuous training. But my opinion has changed a bit. Uh, so uh, today we practice both a lot of intervals and a lot of continuous training. We have have changed from almost just intervals 
over to more continuous training. But of course, intervals uh, are uh, are important part of every athlete's sort of uh, life. Uh, And it needs to be race specific. At least a lot of it needs to be race specific. Um, And if I were to give some tips, I would... Uh, sort of find some intervals you point out as key sessions where you need to be sharp you need to be have good restitution in front of so that you are sharp at that interval uh, and yeah as as a key session during a month or, or during a, a period of training when you refer to continuous training there, uh, do you include the low-intensity continuous training that uh, I'm sure your guys do every every single day? Or do you refer to sort of more uh, even things like moderate-intensity training that you mentioned that you don't do that much? But is that what you refer to with continuous yeah, training? Yeah, I refer to it as high-intensity continuous training, sort of uh, 30-minute all-out, one-hour all-out, uh, but with no breaks um mm. uh, that's what i'm so the take to. so the takeaway there is that uh, three years ago you wouldn't have done any of that but these days you do some of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's correct three years ago I, I was uh more into intervals than uh hard continuous training uh, but this has changed the last years uh both in for us both in skiing and in more general training like running uh we do now we do intervals in both running and roller skiing uh and we do continuous hard training in both of them as well which we would never do 3 years ago and what is the reason for that <sighs> yeah uh i think it's uh, for me uh, it has to do with the specificity uh that uh, this that you don't always need to go for the higher speed because in intervals you will probably end up going a bit faster than you do in a race if you um, yeah are to compete 60 minutes uh, and you you split up this uh, race into six times 10 minutes you probably can end up going a bit coming a bit further Uh, but if you do it as a continuous hard uh, um, session you probably end up around the same so the the technique and everything are more race specific than with intervals not the big difference but a difference yeah that makes sense and uh, finally, threshold training. Not finally, we have one other, but threshold training next. Yeah, uh, and this is probably one of the topics which I find a bit controversial uh, and a topic which we discuss a lot, uh, both in the team and with other coaches, <laughs> with my wife. Uh, and this r- sort of refers to an, an area and not a specific pace or what, uh, etc. Uh, and and I, th- I find it quite difficult because you and I could probably d- end up being uh, discussing this topic and we 
we sort of could be talking about different concepts because there's, <laughs> I don't know, 50 different definitions of what's, what is threshold. Is it uh, a blood lactate level of four? Is it a blood lactate level of two? Is it, uh, what does it refer to? And for me, it's not a, it, it, or it's often referred to at, as a specific point at uh, some specific pace you have your threshold. And for me, this is uh, not correct. This is, for me, this refers to a, a quite large area, which I say is, is the threshold uh, area uh, where, yeah, you might end up having a, a, accumulating a bit lactate, but it's still not much. And, um, but as I said, this, the, we could end up discussing this topic with coaches, with the uh, physio- uh, physiologist for <laughs> uh, a week. I'm, I'm quite sure. So I, I find it hard to have a um, take-home message other than don't think of the threshold as a specific pace. It, it's not because it's your physiology, uh, physiology is not that specific. So, so to follow up on that, uh, how do you define it? What's your definition of, of <laughs> that area? The thing is, I don't have a, a – when I talk with my athletes about today we're doing a, a threshold interval, for example, uh, I don't – I never use lactate because uh, I find it hard to have a de- definition. I always say that I use more <laughs> the language. Like I want to see – Nobody's laying on the grass after the interval. It will. It should be done with control. Uh, if you're doing one hour with intervals, say six point ten minutes, which we often do, uh, you. If I were to say after the sixth interval, uh, let's do three more at the same pace. You would. Uh, the athletes should be able to do this. Uh, they shall be tired of course but they i don't want them to be laying at, uh, on the grass gasping for air uh, so uh, i'm not a fan of using lactate and maybe this is because we we don't have this we're not competing in flat terrain or or in the same hills uh, every time we have a natural natural interval course it's up and down up and down up and down so if i where should i in that case pick a finger and take a blood lactate sample uh, is it at the top of the hill or is it at the bottom of the downhill or is it after the flat area i, I don't know and i can probably end up discussing this with myself for some time as well uh, so i don't have a de- definition other than uh, have control <laughs> yeah well I, I think that's uh, the definition you gave there with all the examples of how you use the language to prescribe the sessions that that really tells a good story and also how you should be able to do six by ten minutes at threshold so that yeah that already tells us a lot and then one final uh, follow-up question on this topic is um, how 
how important do you consider this type of training to be? Like, do you do a fair amount of it, or is it something that you don't do that much compared to the higher intensity training that you do? I mean, you've already sort of answered it, but yeah, would, is it still important to do this training? Uh, threshold training, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I w- as I said, I, I would not uh, never call it that we train a lot on threshold but but i think to train a lot of your hard sessions with control that i think is very important and we do that a lot we 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 have ended up uh, uh, having more and more control each year i think this year we have we're trying to have even more control of our intervals than we did three years ago when we did more all out sessions than we are planning to do this year we are tr- yeah. we're planning to train more but uh, and in that case we can't have so much all out training and uh, yeah in in that sense you could say we're going more again towards the threshold training concept yeah I'm a big fan of using session RPE as part of my training prescription. So I will say that this training, uh, this workout should feel like a 7 out of 10 or this should feel like an 8 out of 10 or between 8 and 9 out of 10, that sort of thing. So so if you were to put a number on a scale from 1 to 10 on how hard your most of your hard workouts feel or a workout when you still feel, perhaps you can give two examples like one when you're going really hard and one when you're training hard but in control, what would you say would the session RPE should be. Yeah, I think you're into something there. That uh, I would say most of our intervals is between seven and eight, uh, mm-hmm. maybe, and and try not never <laughs> only in competition to be at a ten, uh, and and save save those sessions for competitions, not not use them in in training and. Um, so I, I think between seven and eight uh, is uh, a, a good way to say it. All right, great. And uh, let's move on to to another question here. And uh, we're coming towards the end of the interview, but I want to hear what you would advise amateur athletes to do. So do you have uh, three pieces of advice, for example, that you would give the typical amateur endurance athlete, no matter the sport, whether it's skiing, triathlon or something else? <laughs> yeah um i think i was into it in the start of the interview and w- one thing i sort of preach a lot uh and which is not so physiologically <laughs> evidence-based but this f- find models of training which which you enjoy uh with uh, find types of intervals you f- um think is fun to do not uh, and in that way stay in your own lane because you if you read at the internet or something you will find thousands of uh, ways how to do intervals or uh, how you should train etc but if the only thing i can say that works is you if you were to be better at something or or be good at something you need to do it a lot uh, and to be able to do things a lot you need i I think you need to find some uh uh, like you need to enjoy it in order to do it a lot so um, 
if you like running thousand meters at a at a track and field track, then you do that, even though there, the internet tells you uh, you have to run at least ten uh, k uh, every second day in order to be better. If you like running intervals at a thousand meters, then you do that because you would probably end up doing this a lot more than training you actually don't like but you have read about that it's smart to do yeah yeah that makes sense that makes sense and and, uh, and do you have anything anything else you want to to mention any other piece of advice yeah and and i think this is a like uh, there's two things which i, I also think maybe amateur athletes do a lot and one is that I feel like they always start with the details. Uh, and so an uh, advice is stop focusing on the details, locate the elephant in the room uh, because there's a little or no return of investment in, in starting by focusing on the, uh, on the details in, in that type of sport. If you are a cyclist, for example, it doesn't matter if the uh, steering tape is this or that way or or whatever but it, it it makes a big deal if you can train three more hours a week that has something to say and uh, the the same thing in in cross country skiing it doesn't matter if your skis are yellow or blue uh, <laughs> but it it does matter if you can go more effective uh, effective uh, by investing a bit in your technique sort of say uh, and and the, the the last thing i think amateurs may, maybe neglect is the the recovery phase the importance of recovery uh, because you have many amateurs who are training quite a lot and i know in triathlon especially maybe uh, you have a lot of guys training a lot and they have work as well and in some period i think they neglect recovery and especially in when coming into a competition or something i, I think uh, to see the that hard uh, training sessions hard physically workout that that costs so you need to be able to recover uh, in order to to perform at the highest level you want to do. Yeah, those are great pieces of advice. And uh, the final question, I mean, it's almost, you've almost answered it already because you can obviously turn uh, the piece of advice into like, don't do the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of a mistake. But is there any any addi additional mistake that you think are common among amateur athletes that they should avoid that we haven't talked about already no, I, th I think uh, the advices and the, the mistakes are are probably a, a bit mixed here and but for, uh, i can only say that i, I think that the most common mistake is what i said earlier that they start focusing on the details instead of focusing on the elephant in the room start uh, instead of starting with where am i compared to where i want to be in this sport uh then you start to uh, yeah with steering tape you start with uh, uh brushing your skis on on top of them like 
very very small gains you, you have people in norway as well who are starting with with the altitude training before they even uh, are able to train 300 uh, hours a year and for me then you're starting in the wrong direction you're starting with the details you you need to learn how to say a b c before you're writing a book yeah absolutely well that is i mentioned steven seiler earlier he has a good presentation called the hierarchy of endurance training needs yeah. and uh, i i've made a podcast episode about that actually uh, a while ago like two years ago at least but uh, i think i'll link to that because yeah. uh, that's that brings this point up very nicely in starting to focus on the on the big base of the pyramid and and those first two or three layers and and then you can start to if you have all of those nailed which very few of us do then then you can you can really think about the at the upper layers yeah but uh, yeah let's move into the rapid fire questions yeah. to wrap this up and uh, these ones are short and uh, fast questions and answers yeah and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource i have to choose a book because of, it's not so long ago since i read it and that's open by andre agassi and this is a biography by uh, a tennis biography and i uh, was uh, taken really taken by it, it was a, actually a really good book best biography i ever read okay that goes on my list for sure yeah. i like biographies uh, what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment uh, it's split between my phone and my watch because uh, in my work this is quite uh, substantial and i have this app on my watch called race splitter which i use in competition all the time uh, so and i love it so i would say my phone and my app called race splitter <laughs> and what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success yeah I'm, I'm not sure if i can call it a habit but i would say my ability to communicate with my athletes uh, to to talk with them and to yeah, get them to open and um, uh, see what they're going through, through communication. So I would say communication. All right, great. And finally, uh, where can, is there any place where people can follow you and uh, obviously your podcast, but mention it again, the name of it and so on, and social media, websites, uh, whatever you have that you want to mention? Yeah, I, uh, I think it's easiest to follow me through my podcast, uh, Prestationsprat. Uh, there, me and my wife, as I said, uh, she is better than me at Instagram. <laughs> so uh, uh, I think uh, that's uh, um, Instagram, which is more up to date than my Instagram, which is uh, you can search me up. My name is Eirik Mjernossum, but um, Prestationsprat would be the place. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely go and have a listen because I haven't had time because we scheduled this in uh, actually w w within a very short time span. But I'm looking forward to listening to some of your episodes. Good. All right. But uh, it was great to have you, Eric. You're the first cross-country skiing coach ever on that triathlon show. So congratulations for that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> good luck for the season when it, uh, when it starts again or, or when the new season starts, I should say. Thank you very much. And so honored to be here. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with Eric. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about this. Eric is the first cross-country skiing coach we've had. And I do think that there's so much to learn from uh, looking a bit outside the box, outside our own very narrow box of triathlon 
and uh, in some cases uh, cycling and running. But actually, there's so much we can learn from other sports, including cross-country skiing, including all endurance sports, but even including sports outside of the endurance realm. But uh, this was just a little bit of a uh, of an endurance sport detour. So going to from one endurance sport to another, and I'm really curious to hear what you thought about that. Personally, I really enjoyed the discussion, so very happy to have had Eric on. You can find the show notes for the episode as usual on scientifictriathlon.com, where we'll link to Eric's podcast if you are somebody who might understand what he's talking about in Norwegian, as well as some related episodes, in particular the interview I did with Steven Seiler about polarized training, as well as uh, the episode I did myself on Seiler's hierarchy of endurance training needs. On Thursday, we have another Q&A episode coming out, so stay tuned, stay subscribed, and you will automatically get it as it is released. And next Monday, we have another interview, which uh, might be with one of the world's best open water swimming coaches, yet to be confirmed, but I believe that could be uh, could be the case. So uh, stay tuned, stay subscribed, and uh, I'll see you again on Thursday. In the meantime, if you are looking for training plans or coaching services, please go and check out what we have to offer on scientifictriathlon.com. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, I'm sure you won't be disappointed by the quality of services and products that we have there. And finally, thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart, and keep loving triathlons.